With the crazy world we live in today, many of us seek the adventure of the unknown. Join us everyday Aussies from all walks of life share stories from men and women of all hunting camps. From tips and techniques to the emotional rollercoaster ride of fulfilling a lifelong dream, there is a story to be told by all. Welcome to Hunting Camp Down Under. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Rob Herbert here from the Hunting Camp Down Under podcast. Today is the 21st of June, 2022. It's been quite a while since I've been behind the mic, as it has been for everyone else um, with COVID and all of those sort of travel restrictions and meeting people and uh, getting out and having a bit of a, a crack, I guess. It's been a time for everyone. So... This afternoon's guest I've got with me is Ashlyn Jones and her dad, Dave Jones. And for those who don't know, um, Ashlyn shot in our Olympics um, not too long ago. And I'll leave all of that up to Ashlyn to have a bit of a chat about that. And her dad uh, has helped coach and mentor Ashlyn through her whole shooting career through to where she is today and is the president of the Bansdale Field and Game. So good afternoon, Ashlyn. How are you? Good, thank you. Dave? Afternoon, Rob. Beautiful. So I'm just also having a look at the mic, um, up and downs and those sort of things. I haven't done this for a while. So um, Ashlyn, a little bit about yourself. You grew up in East Gippsland? Yeah, I, um, I was actually, I was born in Shepparton, but I've been living in Lake Centrance since 2007. Um, and I went to school here and started clay target shooting when I was 12. Um, and I've been competing ever since. Fantastic. And um, how old are you? I'm 22 now. 22. <laughs> My goodness me, time flies, doesn't it? What's the statute of limitations on that? I reckon we might just say she started about 10. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to saying 12. <laughs> <laughs> it's good even numbers, I think. Um, and you went to school, primary school locally? Yep. Yeah, so Lakes Primary and then um, Nagel College in Bansdale. Beautiful. And so you would have been shooting in year six year yeah around? yeah yeah so i started uh started coaching with lauren mark um at the sort of towards the end of my grade six year yep how did you find yourself how did you get into shotgun shooting or what was it that sort of got you there i guess yeah um so i think when we moved down here dad was looking for a bit of a social circle outside of work um and i think you did a little bit of shooting when you were younger with your um was your uncle or pa and both. yeah we my parents are both shift workers um so if mum was working on the weekend and dad had gone out to the gun club then i was out at the gun club yep. <laughs> and um i started just following dad around and picking up the full clay targets that hadn't broken when they hit the ground um and collecting empty shotgun cartridges and then dad sort of said well do you want to have a go i was like oh yeah okay um like you gotta remember i was little yeah. Like, <laughs> not very big to hold a shotgun. Um, and, yeah, I had the first shot that I had, I thought, oh, that probably kicked a little bit. It was a 12-gauge. Um, wow. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to give that another go. And then I kept going with Dad and we went to Swifts Creek and um, there was a guy, Henry. Yeah, Henry's um, wife. Yeah, who had a... Year, yeah, he had a 20-gauge. Um, so I had a go of his 20-gauge. 
he's he had a semi-auto, I think, but I had to go with that, and I thought that was much nicer on my shoulder. <laughs> um, so Dad bought me a second-hand. I think it cost like six hundred dollars. <laughs> bought me a second-hand twenty-gauge Yildiz, <laughs> um, and yeah, it got more expensive after that. <laughs> and um, when you went up, to, you said you went up to Swiss Creek. Um, there's a gun club at Swiss, Swiss Creek. That's what you. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. only it's only little. You actually drive past it like it's just off the main road, um, and most people probably wouldn't even know it's there. Yeah, I haven't seen it. You've you have I've you've just missed it. Just yeah. missed it. <laughs> if, if you go, if you drive out of Swift and you're looking to the right hand side and you're looking at the race or the race course, that's um, where it is. You've already missed it. Well, it's between I, the race course and town. I know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's about where I'm having my first sip of my coffee and trying to struggle with a hot pine sauce that I've, I've got from yep. the bakery. <laughs> yep. Yeah, by the time you get to the race course, the sauce is down the front of your that's shirt. Exactly yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> that's yeah. it. So, year six, you're having a bit of a shot with a um, 12 gauge or 20 gauge, sorry. Um, yeah, I just, I followed that around and I just started cherry picking targets. So, some of the easier ones, I didn't, I didn't jump straight into the crosses and quick targets, but yeah, just some of the loopy incomers and then sort of like worked my way up from there. And I, um, bit of time out at the quarry. Yeah, yeah, actually, Dad, when I very first started shooting moving targets, like not like still clay targets because you can just sit them somewhere and just shoot at it, um, but Dad actually had a fishing rod um, like around like a sort of <laughs> stake post thing so that he could stand behind me and on the other end of the fishing rod was like a Diet Coke can and he'd like wind it in <laughs> and I'd shoot at it because you could see with the shotgun pellets it had gone through the Coke can. <laughs> You are an ingenious man. <laughs> Harry, you are a wizard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Diet Coke rabbit. <laughs> Fishing line and a tent pig. Very, very, yeah, I like that idea. That's yeah. a good way to get And then it. Um, 2012, I was in grade six. So when I'd sort of started getting a little bit more into it, um, I couldn't, I couldn't get my gun license quick enough, basically. I, all I remembered wanting for my 12th birthday was a gun license and I was allowed to get my ears pierced. They were the two things. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> parenting done right <laughs> um and then yeah grade six was the same year as uh the london olympic games uh so i watched at the time i was playing volleyball and i know i'm not you can't see me but i'm not particularly tall i definitely don't five have five foot four <laughs> close maybe yeah. something yeah something um so I didn't have the height for volleyball but i still loved playing it and i was doing shooting and those were my two sports um, so I was avidly watching both of those sports on the TV for the Olympics. Um, and it wasn't long after that, Dad actually got in touch with Russell or Lauren? Lauren. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, we sort of teed up for some coaching. And I'd... So, so just I'm, to dial that back, Lauren yeah. and Russell, so for people oh, who don't sorry. know. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I forget. Um, so Lauren and Russell are both um, Olympic clay target shooters. Russell has won gold medal at... Olympics, World Championships. Yeah. Just about anything else. Any, everything. Um, I think Lauren finished fourth at Athens. Athens um, and she's won Com Games gold medals and they've both been doing it for a very long time. Um, and they have a business now, um, Go Shooting, um, yep. and they take new people out to shoot and do some coaching and everything as well. Uh, so, yeah, Dad got in touch with Lauren. It was funny. It was, you know, you might remember when Telstra was one of the major sponsors, they used to have that thing where you could get online and, you know, and send one of those, they called them a hero message or something, I yeah, think. Yep. And you could send a message to an athlete. And um, 
you know, Australians love taking down tall poppies and, you know, Lauren mm. was an American tall poppy in Australia, so that was an even bigger target. And if you remember at the time, there was a whole heap of crap going on in the media about whether Russell and Lauren could share a bedroom in the games Because they were married. Yeah, right. They had yeah. kids, like, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I... Didn't, I'd, I'd been looking at their website, looking at coaching information and I was seeing what was going on in the media and I just sent a message going, you know, I didn't know her from a bar of soap, but <laughs> sent her a message going, you know, Australia, basically Australians are assholes, ignore them, just, you know, do what you got to do over there and, you know, bring home gold for Australia or something like that, I yep. can't remember, something equally lame. <laughs> um, and I didn't expect anything from her, but within about, a, oh, probably within about half an hour, I had a message back from her saying thanks. And... I was kind of blown away by that. And um, then, you know, she asked me what my interest was. And I said, I've actually just been on her website looking at coaching. And, you know, once she found out that I had a 12-year-old daughter who wanted to shoot clay targets. And also and happened was, to be left-handed. Was, was left-handed. She said, um, I want to meet her after the game. So I think she got back in September. And by October, we were down at Werribee. And the journey began from there. You so can only imagine how excited I was to meet somebody who well, went to the Olympics. Yeah, <laughs> I've got a photo with me, um, with it, Lauren, um, and her jacket on. And, yeah, like I, I tried her gun because at that point I'd been shooting a 20-gauge for a little bit now and I'm sort of a bit more used to it. And I went, oh, actually, 12-gauge doesn't feel that bad anymore. The <laughs> other thing about Ashlyn's first gun was, you know, and there was another connection with the marks from a little bit earlier on. When Ashlyn started shooting, um, I realised... You know, I knew nothing at the time about gun fit and, you know, even shotgun shooting, but I realised at the time she was left eye dominant. So Russell used to write for, maybe still does, the um, Sporting Shooters mag. Yep. And um, he, his email address was in his byline. And so I just sent him an email and said, I've got a, you know, young girl, right-hander, left eye dominant, you know, seems to be a bit of a conundrum in shotgun, what do I do? And he said, start her off left-handed. Because your left eye, your dominant eye is so important in shotgun, mm. unlike rifle right. hunting where, you know, you're lining up two objects. Yep. Your left your eye is the rear sight. So rather than getting down the track and finding out you've got to shoot with a patch over your eye or something like that. And there's not a game in the world that we do better with one eye shut. That's why we don't close our eyes when we play sport. <laughs> um, you know, it, as it turns out, was a was a pretty good move. Yeah, well, I, I also... Um want to put in there as well so we're getting a bit of a story down which is um your timeline i guess um that dad, dad was hunting ducks in duck season yeah um as well was, was jacks your dog there? yeah 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 jacks jacks was our curly and um yeah we got out the first couple of seasons i had him and then once ashland started competing seriously time which, was which we'll skip a We'll probably skip a few years there, but time got really short. I consumed yeah, so. a lot of weekends. <laughs> so it was, um, and not only that, you know, trying to wrap shift work around yep. a weekend competition schedule and trips to Melbourne during midweek for coaching and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, life got pretty busy pretty quick. So just, I, I guess it's uh, pretty easy uh, for us three sitting in the room. I've actually, in uh, a past life, I used to work uh, alongside Dave at different jobs. So I'm trying not to glaze over, I guess, the stuff that we know as, as um, friends of how and where we're at, I guess. So um, Dave's coming from a real outdoorsy background as a dad, um, shooting duck season, that sort of stuff. Kids growing up in East Gippsland in Victoria, which is a very 
outdoors dominated um, area. Um, fishing, hunting, fishing, camping, hunting, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. Um, and Ashland's um, gone into year six, picked up the shotgun and um, has just been blessed with some Olympians <laughs> to start in her life then and have Dad also um, be running around with you on the weekends mm. and driving you to training and stuff. So what's your training schedule like at that age when you were at school and trying to balance you know, high school and going into high school and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, it, it was busy. So um, at the start... I shot American skeet, um, so there's lots of different clay target disciplines, um, and I shoot skeet, and there's also a couple of versions of skeet. So uh, American skeet is what we call sort of like the domestic version, um, and then ISSF skeet or international skeet is the Olympic event. So when I went and saw Lauren, um, I said to Lauren, I'm trying to sort of step out how everything kind of happened, but I said that like I really wanted to go to the Olympics. Um, so we sat down with Lauren. It was probably only a couple of sessions after I met her mm. um, with Dad at her kitchen bench and like on this tiny little notepad started scribbling down an eight-year plan to get to Tokyo in 2020 um, and that didn't have the Rio Olympics or the 2018 Commonwealth Games. That was a question mark on there um, and my plan was to start in american skeet because i even though i'd started in sporting um that wasn't an olympic event so i needed to change to skeet and skeet actually um what is skeet yeah so uh, i think originally it came about um because people were practicing for duck shooting so there's lots of sort of crossing targets um birds flying in different directions kind of thing um it's simply put there's two clay target houses and they have these machines in them that throw clay targets out. Um, the We have a high house and a low house, that's what we call them. Yep. Obviously the high house is taller than the low house, simply put. Um, and those targets fly out and cross um, through a centre hoop. Um, so they're travelling in opposite directions basically and I shoot from different stations. We've got eight stations that sort of form a semicircle going from the high house to the low house and then there's one in the center and we shoot a sequence of targets for a round of 25 basically um that's skeet and then obviously there's a couple of differences between the domestic skeet and the olympic skeet um the targets are faster there's a random three second delay so when i call pull it could come out straight away it might come out three seconds later two seconds later we don't know but we know where the target is basically going um and we shoot gun down so when i say gun down like my gun is off my shoulder and it has to sit below or sort of touching like a yellow line on my shooting vest and i'm only allowed to mount that gun into my shoulder when the target is released so i've got to react fairly quickly um that's sort of the basic Hmm. summary pretty much so that's what you first started shooting skate uh, apart from the practice staff yeah. and mucking around, skate was the first discipline yeah. that you sort of... Yeah, yeah. So. so I started in American skate, um, which is the domestic version, because there's more competitions, there's more people shooting it, and it was a good, f- like, fundamental base for me to l- shoot skate and learn how to compete and how to... the technical, like, fundamentals for it. 
but I always had the intention of changing to the Olympic discipline to work my way to the Olympics. Yep, part of that eight-year plan. Yeah, yeah. And Dad, Dad did you, how did you find motivation um, for Ashland? Was it there? Did you have to push along a little no, bit? I didn't really have to push at all. Um, it, it was hard to keep her off a, off a range, basically. <laughs> um, and, you know, if you went out there with a slab of shells early on, she wanted to finish it. So, <laughs> um, the, you know, she was talking about the difference between the two there. And, you know, when you, in the American discipline, you know, you eliminate the gun mount. You know, you, you put the gun up, your head's on the stock, you know you're in the right spot before you call for the target. Targets are doing about, I think, 46, 48 mile an hour Olympic skeet. You have the targets doing 55, 56 mile an hour, you know, highway speeds. Which is about 100 yeah, about kilometres 100. now. Yep. yep. Um, and so you don't have much time to mount your gun. You know. Yep. Um, so, you know, you ask about motivation. One of the things that, you know, Lauren told Ashlyn that she probably should do is, you know, gun mounts in the mirror at home. So the gun stayed set up in the safe without asking her most nights. She'd go and, you know, well, I'd get the gun out of the safe for her and, you know, she'd go into the bathroom and do 50, 60 gun mounts in the mirror. Wow, yep. Um, every other night. Yep. And, you know, then as she progressed and the decision was made to, to transition to international, um, we added a laser simulator to that so that it incorporated the mount and the move because we didn't have access to an Olympic ski range down here at that point. We had to drive to Frankston. For people that don't know, that's about <laughs> you know three hours forty, I guess. Yep. I think about that now, and I'm like, I don't even. We did I, that every I live weekend much. Yeah, for I months. I live until we could get a range. Mm, I live much closer to Melbourne now. I live in Lee and Gatha, um, with my partner Jack, and it's probably like an hour and ten maybe to Frankston and even then like you can like it it feels it's so much shorter but it's it just makes me realize how much further away like Centurance is and how we used to do that and I don't know how I don't know how you did it to be honest but yeah so she um you know she did mounts in the mirror every night for probably a year she'd done thousands of mounts before she actually fired an IWSF target Mm. and you know that eliminates that creates the muscle memory and eliminates the risk of an error you yeah, know, yeah. In a sport where one target's going to mean the difference between making a final or not making a final, um, and the you know the timing you're looking at, you know from the from that split second when the target's released and she's actually allowed to mount the gun, um, you're looking at shooting your f- acquiring the target, moving on it, tracking it, and pulling the trigger on it to break the first target. It's about 0.55 of a second, and then in the pairs you got another one that's coming the other way and it's all over in about 1.2 1.4 so at this point in time in ashland's career you're not a qualified coach or anything you're just a very Still interested not. man <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot better coach than shooter though <laughs> <laughs> but you've been around i guess a long time i guess just to get that right uh, so yeah. you've been around a lot now and you actually went to the olympics uh, no we didn't go didn't go no it was um when ashland got picked for rio um we kind of jumped a step. We, yeah, so that came. Yeah, I'm going to come came, back to yeah, it, but I just yeah, want yeah. listeners to sort of. Yeah, that came out of the blue. Yeah, um, that wasn't that wasn't on the plan, but she, you know, she once probably because a lot because of that motivation and all that groundwork she did once she did actually transition over, she progressed really quickly, um, and you know, getting picked for Rio, but yeah, nine percent discount for family of an athlete on a package of you know events and four nights accommodation in Rio. Um, and that was the only way you could get tickets that weren't scalped was through one of the legitimate yeah, partners. Yep. And um, 
yeah, that was going to be close to nine grand each, no airfares for four nights, four yep. events. And, you know, between Lynn and I and Renee, that was just out of this world because, you know, that would have been probably a $25,000 trip. And at that stage, that was our entire annual, you know, training and domestic competition budget just to go watch one event. So we stayed home. <laughs> so the, um, I, I want to come back and touch on that for other parents that may be listening with kids that are interested in getting into shotgun shooting, um, having to have that... Um, rigidity with the training budget, I guess, and that sort of stuff really does affect the family as well because yeah, of how does. you're going to be shooting so many, um, you know, how, on a training weekend, if you went to it, what would you shoot? How many shells would you shoot? Oh, I worked it out at one stage. She was shooting close to 30,000 rounds a year. Yeah, there you go. And that's probably backed off a little bit now that she's built competency, mm. but to build that competency in the first place, there's a lot of repetition. Yeah. So, and that was on top of dry firing at home. Mm. Plus all the travel from a rural area, plus all of the comps yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So we're also trying to balance school. I know I'm jumping forwards and backwards. So mm. um, you've moved into high school. Yeah. Um, and you're still training, still doing your, your schoolwork. How did you find that when you're training at home? I mean, kids do go and play um, outside of curriculum. They have their own sports, football or whatever it is. You're trying to balance um, shotgun training and school. How did you find that? Yeah, I mean... It was obviously a very different extracurricular activity to most of my friends, or all of my friends. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I, I Discipline. Have, yeah. I guess I've just... I kind of feel like I've always had it, but it, I've built it over through high school and it's now helping me in my life now. Um, but, like, I went to my first international event when I was 15, 15 so year nine. Uh, and that was to Germany. Yeah. Yes. I'm it gets kind of blurs yep, all into one. Okay. But um, and then I went to uh, the bulk of my travel was year 11 and 12. Obviously, um, I went to Rio when I was 16. So I was in year 10. Um, but my years were probably actually busier in terms of travel in the next two years after that, um, which was the lead up to the Com Games. So I think I worked out my attendance for year 11 and 12. Uh, was like I might have just cracked 50% average for those, both those years and that's in terms of like days at school um, and I just had to manage my time really well um, and I guess it, it kind of prepared me for uni a little bit because it was my responsibility to get in touch with the teachers and find out hey what work am I going to be missing when I go away here can I take that with me and I'll do it on the plane or I'll do it at the range like I was studying on planes while people next to me are sleeping at the range in between rounds um, in hotel rooms like anywhere um, and I think not everybody depending on who they are and what they love doing not everybody has that drive mm -hmm. um, but I was really academically focused and I did two year 12 subjects in year 11 so it also balanced out my workload so I didn't have all five or six of my subjects in year 12 um, and I worked really hard through school and like nobody talks about your ATARs after you get them, but I was really proud of mine um, because I had less subjects than other people and I knew how much work I'd put in to get that score. And even though like I haven't really used it, I'm still proud of balancing that because it was hard. For sure. Yeah, she I think well, she nearly she underselling herself. She nearly cracked ducks off nearly. four subjects. Yeah, so my sister got ducks. She went up to me and she makes sure that I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But I think to the other side that um, is maybe overlooked a little is uh, when we do play football, um, coming from a boy's point of view, it's a very social thing and you go to school mm. and you've got five or six of your um, close mates playing the same team and you know you talk about football and that sort of stuff. As a young girl in a heavily male-dominated sport, did you find yourself a little isolated, as in you didn't have 10 or 15 other girls at school that were all shooting at that level and trying to do that stuff? Did you did you find it was a little isolating that way socially and the, the dedication to training? And, and Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. And I, I've thought about it more since finishing high school than probably what I did when I was at school. Um, I always sort of had like a smaller group of friends anyway. That's just who I am. I sort of kept to myself... Um, especially coming in and out of school and I didn't get invited to all of the 18ths and I couldn't go to all of the 18ths because I had training the next day. After I did go, I'd drive myself home um, and not drink. So it was just what I got used to. But um, yeah, I definitely felt at high school that I was kind of always like a little bit out of it. Like just that's kind of just how it was. But I had um, like a couple of really close friends in shooting who shoot trap the other event um and like one of them's a few years older than me and like we've just become really close in the sport and you sort of come to the realization that and Lauren told me at the start like it's it's lonely you know you sort of near the top when it gets a bit lonely um and especially to being a male dominated sport like I've realized definitely now as I've gotten older I think I didn't notice as much when I was younger I kind of just got on and did my thing but yeah, yeah you don't think about it and then I've sort of realised that like I'm 22 and female and I go to events, um, particularly some of the domestic events now, and I'm like, there's really not that many people that I, outside of the sport, would choose to spend my time with. It's like your time is valued and I know who I want to spend my time with and those people usually aren't at shooting. So you got to find other reasons. Like you can't just do it because your friends are doing it because that's not always how it works. But, yeah, I, I don't, um, like, I don't wish I played a different sport or anything like that because I think shooting's given me a lot of really unique opportunities that um, I've been very fortunate to have and have worked really hard for. Um, but, like, it's funny because when I was at school, I was never interested in netball. I was like, nah, everybody else is doing that. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that in itself, I mean, you're, you're such a well-spoken um, young lady talking about this stuff. You make me feel a little dumbed down, but... <laughs> Um, I think that um, it, when we've been social before and you've mentioned that it was difficult at some stage to explain to your peers at school that shooting is a sport mm. because people, you know, if I said I'm, I'm a karate expert, they imagine your head rolling around on the floor and doing 100 push-ups and 300 <laughs> spinning kicks and that's sport and that's, you know, kicking the footy around and, and playing netball, that's sport and it was... Did you find that, that it was difficult to try to, you know, that shooting is an actual... Yeah, most people, um, I guess because it's it's not one of your sports that you see all the time on TV, like you turn on the TV and you'll see swimming, like you have to actually go and find the shooting like on the TV, like it's not, it's mm. not anywhere that's yeah. easy to be seen, so um, I'm lucky i think growing up in a country or regional area it's definitely more known about because people do like recreational activities like hunting and fishing and all of that so it is um more common more so than if i was at a metropolitan school and went oh hey i do clay target shooting and everyone's like really (laughs) um but 
yeah, like I had, I was. Doesn't um, it hurt? Like, does it definitely? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like it's hard to explain because it, in most people's eyes, it doesn't fit the stereotypical uh, definition of a sport. People think sports are physical and like you've got to be on strict diets and have training regimes and everything else. And shooting does, but it's in a different way. Um, And that looks different for different people. There's a much more, I feel like it's more inclusive because you don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to train a certain way. Um, Like we have our Shooting Australia team and everybody has their own ways of training and how they approach um, their shooting careers. Like it's so vastly different. Um, Whereas people think like athletics and they think teams and everything else so but shooting was one of the original sports from the olympics so like it's been there from the very beginning and that's sort of what i come back to is that it was there from the beginning like so you can't get any more sort of authentic than that um and i think that's pretty incredible and they used to shoot it very differently to how they do now they used to having somebody hand release a pigeon out of a cage and it'd fly out <laughs> like <laughs> lunchtime <laughs> um but i think the sport's changing in a way probably um that like people are more interested in sort of nutrition and like you don't have to be stupidly fit or anything like that but it it does it does pay to look after your health and like... Well, to have that concentration yeah. level when you're on the line and like you are saying, yeah. you've got a 100 kilometre an hour target that's whizzing past you. Yeah. Mm. And you're swinging a four kilogram piece of steel. Yeah. Know, like it's... If In you all think, sorts of weather conditions. It, yeah. Mm. But it, you know, if you think about comparable, you know, weighted items, you know, an axe or um, a javelin, if you... If you think of a training session as being between 125 and maybe 200 targets for some of Australia's top shooters in a training session, that means that they're lifting, you know, four kilos. You talk yep. about gyms and you know, reps and you know, how many times you do something in an hour and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And you, the mental fatigue, I think, too. Mm. Of, um, yeah, four, four kilos of steel, you know, 150 or 200 times um, and swinging it in different directions. It's still physical. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I'm tipping there's not too many javelin throwers out there that are throwing their javelin 200 times in a session. <laughs> <laughs> I actually threw a javelin for Australia at the uh, Junior Olympics, oh. and it wasn't as bad as that. <laughs> 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 there we go. We learned something yeah. about Rob. Yeah, I've got a bronze, bronze medal. So yeah. congratulations. Yeah. So um, you're not t- going. You're not going to go after deer with spears anytime soon. <laughs> Let's move on. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> this was a hunting podcast. Come it on. is. It is. <laughs> I think though that uh, what what you've just outlined there um, is really good for I think um, people to hear. That it isn't just as easy as walking up to the line with your dad's old under and over, and anyone can hit the target. I think that mm. there is a certain amount of training that you need to do when you're saying that you, you don't need to be, you know, like a uh, size eight, mm. you know, or you know, have an eight pack, and you know, do all that sort of stuff. You certainly have to be sharp, and you have to be mentally well aware, mm. um, and physically able to stand on the line and have that competitive pressure. From I think, when you play in a team, even though shooting can be a team, I guess, and I'll I'll come back to that in a little bit. But if you're on the football field, and I'm going back to football, being an ex footballer. There's so many other people that can make a mistake. But when you're on the line and you've got 
the world watching you mm. and it's your turn and you say pull, there isn't seven other shooters that are going to hit the target for you. It's you. Yeah. So having the physical stamina to actually go through the whole competition and suffer some losses as well and know that you're behind by one target or one, you know, to meet a team requirement even to get into the Olympic team and yeah. that sort of stuff. So, you know, I think uh, it certainly is maybe um, overlooked a little maybe as it's, to... It's really mental. Yeah. You know, like it's a, it's a heavily mental sport. You any any be... sport at that level is yeah. like people, I don't think most people realise like when, you, when you're under pressure, you come back to what you know and um, the reason like that there's so much repetition and everything else is because you want to not have to think about like what you're doing from a technical point of view you need to focus on your process and your routine to allow your body to just do what it does and what Mm. it's trained for um like yeah everybody's the olympics is obviously the pinnacle event um and there's can be a lot of pressure around those pinnacle events um and yeah there's some really fascinating like psychology and stuff behind that um but it is yeah hugely mental sport well i know even from me um shooting friendly 3d rounds with my bow um you know brad murphy is one of australia's leading archery coaches and um it's amazing how much when you've got a whole bunch of guys behind you and you're back at full draw and you're putting your pin exactly where you want to because you want to actually shoot tighter than the other guy that's put an arrow in and then he starts whispering junk into your ear Ooh. how much you've got to <laughs> mentally block out whatever it is that he said and just focus on... doesn't have to be just know. him whispering in your ear. You've got your own little demon <laughs> yeah. sitting on your shoulder going, are you going to miss this sunshine? Yeah. Yeah. Have, you, have you done this right? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah on the it's, right pin. It's really, it's really interesting. You know, like the, um, from, the, from that mental aspect of it, there's a lot of stuff from international shooting or even domestic shooting as a target sport that carries over into hunting. Oh, yeah. definitely. Because, you see a you know, deer with antlers on it compared to one with not. I'm guessing that you're going to be thinking yeah, a little heart, bit more about the fact <laughs> that you want it. Heart rate goes up a little bit, and then that little voice on your shoulder goes, yeah, what's the wind doing? You know, is that branch going to get in the way? You reckon you can pull this off? you gotta, you got to stay in the moment. You can't think about the one that you missed last time you were out. Yep. And you can't think about what happens if you do get this one or you don't get this one or, you know, you have, you have to stay present. Yep. You know, as soon as you drift into future thought or past thought. Well, I've got this in the bag. Yeah, there's no easy shots. Mm. And that doesn't matter whether it's target sports or hunting. Yeah, yeah. There is no easy shots. You don't know whether it's going to move. Um, at least Ashwell knows her target's going to move. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not sitting still. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a lot of the mental stuff and a lot of the sports psychology stuff that you know we do we've done over the last 10 years carries over into into hunting sport so talking about the hunting sports too i also want to uh, touch on our local club which is the bandstaff field and game yep um it's undergone a drastic um facelift i guess in the last since you started shooting mm. yeah probably 10 years eight years and it's now at an international standard yeah it is for um it is for skeet and um, you know, we got a, we're really well set up. We've hosted two nationals in the last, uh, what was that, 2018, 2019, back-to-back nationals. Yep. So, you know, really high standard of grounds that we can present out there for um, simulated field or some people would call it sporting. Um, we've got 
the two skate grounds, which we can run as domestic or international. The thing we're missing is Olympic trap. Um, and, you know, it's a bugbear of mine personally with Renee coming up shooting Olympic trap. And there's, there's a bunch of other kids in the area that, you know, I, I said to somebody the other day, like, I didn't magically breed two high-end clay target shooters. I think you, you know. did. Well, <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah, but what we did was <laughs> what we did was we took two kids and gave them an opportunity. 100%. And you, statistically, it's impossible that I just happened to have the only two in East Gippsland. You know, if we had an Olympic tra trap range here, instead of having seven on the periphery of Melbourne where people don't have access to guns per capita that we've got down here, yep. then you know statistics say that we would find the next twenty Michael Diamonds, not just the next one. Yeah. So or Catherine Skinners or Letitia Scanlons, you know particularly women in this sport. The, the interesting girls um, in this sport, as a result of Ashland going to the Olympics, you know, school clay target teams, you know, were pretty evenly mixed there at one point because girls wanted to do what she'd done. And they saw that, you know, that was, you know, they might not get to that level, but it was a reality was that achievable. they could at least participate. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so kids down here have got, you know, generally access to a gun that will get them started. Might not be the gun that they end up shooting competition with, but you've got to start somewhere. Yep. Um, what we're missing is an Olympic trap layout. And it makes me sick every time I see another announcement for you know, $10 million worth of mountain bike trails or $50 million for an Olympic swimming pool or you know, I think it's $10 million for the, the hockey and soccer centre or whatever that they're building in Bairnsdale. You know, and there's a, lot, yeah, there's, there's a lot of participation in those sports, but if you look at it for a dollar, you know, bang for your buck, you know, pardon the pun investment, you know, we've pulled more medals out of you know, shooters per capita in this country for decades now than, you know, a lot of other sports can produce. And it comes from giving kids opportunity and just, you know, we're never going to get them to that level if they've got to drive to Frankston to train. It's not an option. So, you know, 200 grand to drop an Olympic trap layout in the ground in Bansdale would be money really, really well spent on sport in this district. Because the other thing is that you know, not every kid wants to play hockey or soccer or footy or cricket. Case in point. You know, <laughs> I, I, can, I can tell you now, if you want to get kids off the couch and away from a video game machine, and my kids weren't, you know, we just had a no screens rule when the kids were growing up because we weren't on them outside. Yep. But, you know, I, I get parents talking to me in the ambulance about their kids with their mental health problems and stuff and, you know, how do I fix this? I'm going to get them outside. And clay target sports are the, the key sport for getting those kids off the couch. One, they're safe, because there hasn't been a kid injured clay target shooting and oh, school anyone. shooting in the last 40 years, and there's not another sport that can claim that record. Um, but it produces the same endorphin hit and the same chemical mm. releases that they get from splatting you know, a figure on a screen. Yep. Smoking you know, a clay target is like... It is addictive. Yeah. You know, like you hit one, you want to do it again, because that felt pretty good. That was my problem. I got one release. <laughs> <laughs> but, for 28 targets you know, or something. But, but those kids are doing something that's simulating stuff that's often pretty violent. You know, it's desensitising them to stuff that we don't really want to desensitise them yep. to. Particularly you and I have come out of backgrounds where we've seen stuff that we don't want to see again. Those kids are seeing it on a daily basis and they will get desensitised to it. There's no question. Um, if they wouldn't, the army wouldn't be using those games as training aids yeah. or things like them. But... If you get those kids off the couch, bring them out to a clay target club, and we put a shotgun in their hands and teach them to be responsible with it, and you know, develop them so that they can talk to everyone between the age of twelve and eighty, mm. um, 
and give them that same rush every week, every other weekend, you know, that they get from sitting in front of a screen. They won't want to stay in front of a screen for anywhere near as long. So I think um, to... And actually, one other thing I'll touch on there is when they hit something on a screen and it hits them back and their character's dead or however that works, um, there's no consequences. Hit reset, restart, start again. Yeah, zero consequences. But you have to be responsible with a firearm and you have to be responsible around a gun club or somebody's going to pull you up on it. And if you use it for the wrong things, there are consequences. Yeah. So, you know... I've, I can't walk into a footy club and genuinely say that there's 18 or 20 kids there in their late teens that I'm happy to spend the time with. But there's not too many kids that hang around at clay target clubs that aren't pretty good kids. Yep. And that's, that's, pretty, that's a rare statement to be able to make. Yeah, and that's coming from, uh, I guess, your um, increased time from when, when Ashton first started shooting you know, and where you were at with the Bandstyle Field and Game to now being you're the president yeah. of Bandstyle Field and Game. Um, and, and I think to the relevance too to hunting as well to sort of bring it back to that, um, you know, if we lost Olympic shooting, how would that affect the sport? Yeah, that's yeah. a really interesting question because a lot of people don't understand the relationship between firearms, politics and sport. And... Shooting gives, or Olympics, Olympic level competition, Com Games competition, gives shooting a degree of legitimacy that anti-gun lobby can't argue against. Yeah. Um, they just can't. There's no legitimate argument they can put up that says that it's not a sport when it's an Olympic level sport. Yeah. Um, if we lost, we've, we've lost shooting out of the Com Games for the last Com Games, or well, the one that's yes, about yes. to happen, um, you know, in Birmingham, Hopefully, it's back in for the next one. Um, the Indians are lobbying pretty hard because they like the medals that they win in shooting sports and they actually offered to pay for people to compete in India this year. So like, it's a big deal in international sport yeah, whether yeah. some of these events get up or not. But um, if we lost shooting out of the Olympics, then you know the anti-gun lobby has got a pretty good argument to say that we're a, a sport that's you know, on the outer, that we're losing our legitimacy, our relevance then they can argue that we don't need some of the firearms that we need. Um, they already think hunting is illegitimate activity anyway because most of them want to eat, I don't know, fake sausages and yep. other rubbish. Um, and they will use that against us in a big way. And once we lose that, it, it'll become a lot harder to keep clubs and you know, it'll probably become a lot harder to keep hunting. And they're already after, you know, field and game. I don't have to tell anyone that they're already after duck hunting in a big way. Yep. You know, we struggle to get a season every year. Yep. Every year they're doing things to try and diminish the number of people paying for licenses and out in the swamps hunting because they know if they can diminish the numbers far enough, then they can wipe it out without anyone really blinking. Yep. And, you know, it's, it's hard to say. It's not a matter of time the way things are going at the moment. Mm. If that happened, that would be, a, you know, that'd be a big day for field and game because... Nobody's going to maintain a membership for hunting foxes and rabbits. Mm-hmm. So then what happens to that as an organisation? You know? And as a hunting and, organi- hunting and conservation organisation, we do a pretty good job. You know? But there's not going to be anyone out there maintaining wetlands, building nesting boxes, all the know, work that and they, doing yep. all the work on sustainable harvest, and let's call it what it is, yep. um, if we lose duck hunting. So, you know, but it all dovetails. Totally, and I think um, we'll come back to that in a, in a minute. I also want to make sure, because I've, I've got to be aware of our, our time, um, 
I'm blind as a bat. Mm-hmm. I think we've been going for for nearly an hour. Um, but I want to also come back to your eight-year plan. Mm. I know that I've been everywhere in this podcast <laughs> and we haven't really kept track of it. Um, so at what stage did you uh, know that you were now definitely on track to shoot for what Olympics? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting how that plan turned out in the end. So um, I transitioned from American Skeet to IWSF Skeet in 2000 or late, late 2014, early 2015. Um, made my first junior Australian team that year. Um, and then I sort of, well, I competed in all of the Olympic selection events um, because they were all of the events that we were going to anyway. Um, and I won a couple of them. Mm. I, can't, I can't really remember. Yeah, anyway, yeah. The, the selection policies change all the time um, and they're really hard to keep up with. But... I got selected for Rio, um, which was insane. I was 16 that year yep. um, when I went. I was in year 10, so I was what like, I look back thing. now and I'm like, I was just a kid. I knew nothing about life. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was an like, insane experience. Like I walked out in Rio uh, at the opening ceremony, like with the Australian team behind the flag. Actually, I was, because I was one of, the youngest athletes on the entire Australian Olympic team, they asked me to walk out in the front row of athletes of the Australian team. So, like, there was no trying to spot Ashton on the camera. It was like, oh, yeah, there she is, like, (laughs) at the front. (laughs) Um, So that was, yeah, just an insane experience. And um, I, I, like, I wasn't expected to do anything spectacular. It was um, an experience that was going to basically helped me at future events and games um, because I'd been and done that and I, I've, I'd felt the pressure. And so the next time I went, it's like, oh, yeah, I've been here before. Um, but, yeah, so after that, um, that was a massive high. And then I continued on um, travelling to different World Cups and World Championships. At the time, I was still a junior because juniors is under the age of 21. Um, so I was going to junior and senior events. Um and Seniors then, in my life actually <laughs> made a lot of adults. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then I made the Australian Com Games team um, on the Gold Coast, and that that was just awesome because it was a home games. Like my family went, uh, my extended family went, like some sponsors, like friends. I think there's a group photo of me with everybody that came that is support to support me, and there would have been like I don't know thirty people mm, probably. probably. Or in matching um, shirts. Yeah, um, yeah, wearing Team Ashland shirts, yes. Um, and, like, that was just really cool. Um, and I will not forget, like, walking out into the opening ceremony for the Com Games because uh, the Australian team goes out last from yeah. memory um, because it's the team that everybody's waiting to see. Yep. Um, and, like, walking out into a home crowd stadium was just like off its head. It yeah. was insane. Yeah. Um, and actually, funnily enough, so mum and dad and Renee mm. went to the opening ceremony for the Com Games um, and they managed to get seats like at the front, like so near like the ground level of the stadium. Yeah, were they crazy supporting parents like you see at the footy? <laughs> like you could say it like that. <laughs> no, but I could see like I think mum had a little bit of a like neon yellow sort of shirt on. You could see the like it stood out a little bit but they messaged me when I was waiting to walk out they're like oh we're 
like we're at the front somewhere but like you'll walk past us basically as you walk around sort of to do the lap of the stadium and don't ask me how in a crowd of however many thousand people were there I saw my parents left the team ran over to the edge of the stadium mm. gave mum a hug and ran back to yeah, join cool. the team so yeah that was pretty cool um, Dad's like, that's my girl. <laughs> that's it. <Yep. laughs> um, so that that was really cool too. Um, and then, yeah, we continued on. 2019 was probably my busiest year. It was my first year after finishing high school. I wasn't doing uni, so I just committed to shooting. Um, with obviously my eight-year plan being for Tokyo in 2020, that was kind of like the biggest year before the Olympics. Yep. Um, obviously not anticipating the whole COVID <laughs> situation. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah. So I think, I don't know, I might have gone on like six international trips that year. Um, and then, yeah, we came into the start of 2020 from January till March was our Olympic selections events. Um, there was two in January, I think one in February and one in March, something like that. Um, and you start to see things popping up in the news about COVID in different countries and you sort of think, oh, is it going to come and hit Australia? We the going on down here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we had to true. go the long way around to get to Newcastle. We had to go via Melbourne because, and, you know, leave the house covered in sprinklers because we actually mm. didn't know whether it was going to be here when we got back. Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty so. terrible time. Yeah, there was lots of things actually that happened sort of the start of that year. Um, we lost Jack's, our curly retriever, sort of at the very end of the Olympic selections because he we got sick with cancer. Um, but... Yeah, I went to those events and I was feeling a bit burnt out from like I'd been doing it since I was 12, hadn't really slowed down, went from school straight to like giving it my all for like these events and I found myself at the start of the Olympic selection series like a little bit burnt out. Um, oh, you're, you know, you're at a point where you're questioning whether you were doing it because it was just something you'd always done or whether you really yeah, wanted I'd, it. Yeah, I'd done it. It's all I knew. Like Robotic was going almost. to training yeah. and going to the next event. And it was like, okay, well, what's the next thing and what's the next thing? Um, and, yeah, like it was a challenging time for me and I didn't perform to my best and that's simply all it was. Yep. And I didn't make the Australian Olympic team. Um, and... I guess that's reality of life. Sometimes things don't go to plan. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of... Uh, then, basically, the last selection event, um, they shut the borders, I think, like, the next week or something like that. So, I went from busy trying to make Olympic team to just nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Like, um, I was lifeguarding at the time, so mm. I didn't have work. Um, I was doing a little... I was doing, like, a PT course online, so that was good. But it, it kind of was, like, polar opposite... And it really gave me time to like just have a break. Um, and it was kind of, it was a little bit of a turning point for me really. Um, but yeah, um, that was my eight year plan that didn't amount to where it was supposed to go, but I don't, I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, like, it's, it, that's where sport teaches your resilience. You know, you have to adapt. Yep. You know, plans, you can make a plan. It's not always gonna work out. You know, when there's one spot in something in the country you know, for somebody to go and do, there's going to be people who miss out. And mm. so you have to learn with what that's like. Um, so, so I just wanted to, uh, and uh, Dave's actually just giving me a little mental, you know, things to ask you. Mm. We were talking about the team. How big's the team that you actually, how many positions like are Like for you? the Olympic team? Yeah. Um, so it depends on each cycle. Um, let quotas? me try and explain yeah. this and then if I get stuck, you can <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> help me. Um, there's a lim limited number of quotas or spots for athletes at the Olympics. 
um, and how that works is the we call them quota spots, um, and they get uh, awarded to like the gold medalists at World Cups and World Championships, and there's a limited number of them. So they cap the numbers at Olympics to I think it might be like eighteen or twenty. No, it's, t- it's ten and a half thousand athletes. Oh, yeah, but eighteen size, or twenty like yeah. in my event. Oh yeah, but, but, like but it's very small. The quota system manages the size of the Olympics because otherwise it'd be a hundred thousand people yeah. trying to compete for stuff. So yeah. ten and a half thousand athletes is what they build a games village around, yeah. and then each sport gets you know carved up. So Ashland's event for Rio, I think, had twenty one quotas. Yeah, um, and they were divvied up and given out at you know World Cups, World Championships, and then some of them to create, um, I guess, a more equal distribution across the continents are given out on regional games. So. Yep. Australia gets quotas European, off the Oceania Championships. Yeah. Europeans get some of theirs off the European Games, Pan American Games for yeah, over there. So yeah, so the Australian Olympic team in Rio, we probably there might have been six shotgun. I think six. I think yeah. There was only one women's skate shooter, so one spot. Um, and it was the same for Tokyo in 2020. We had one spot in my event. The most you can win in each event, so it might be men's trap, women's trap, men's skate, women's skate, um, is two. So the biggest team we could have at a Games now would be eight. And we don't usually have a full team because we don't always win quotas in all of the skate events. So for a mum and dad or for a interested um, young shooter, Basically, just to make it very easy to um, understand, like when you um, compete at school events, you compete at the school, you do really good, then you go to um, zone and then you go to regional and then you go to state. Um, What's the sort of progression for shooting? Yeah, so um, it's different for everyone depending on what discipline (coughs) you want to do and what you have access to in terms of facilities and comps. But basically my plan... Uh, from my point of view was to school shooting was a thing when I um, came into high school but it, it definitely grew in the time that I was at high school so it wasn't sort of formally part of my plan but they're definitely really good events to go to because you don't often get to shoot with as many peers or compete against as many peers that are around your own age um, so from that point of view that's really positive um, but yeah it was basically starting at club level competition um and then we didn't really have many zone events um but if you can get to zone events they're really good because they're kind of like a stepping stone um the next level would be state level so big state titles if you can get to new south wales for the state titles or south australia like the closer ones um and then nationals um and then once you sort of chasing sort of all of those domestic events it gets expensive but um then you can start to, if you're looking at obviously the Olympic disciplines, we have the Shooting Australia um, High Performance Program um, and we often have like our coach um, and a few of the support staff come to like the big events like the Nationals or our selection events. Uh, And then at the end of each year, I think the process is you can apply to be a part of their high performance program and they have different levels in the squad. So they've got a development Pathway. Oh, sorry, Pathways is what it's called now, I think. Um, Like a Pathways level, and they have quite a big group of people from... And you don't even necessarily have to be shooting the Olympic event yet to be in that Pathways squad. Like, you could still be part of your stepping stone to apply and get in because they're looking for people with potential. Um, So if you're sort of, like, early on in your journey, like the West 
the worst answer you're going to get is no. Yeah. Like, true, and then you true, just apply true. the next year. So you never know what might happen. Um, and then you don't know what opportunities could come from applying or getting into that squad, what you might have access to. Um, and yeah, they've got a new system now for sending more juniors to international events. Um, they've increased how many uh, athletes you can send from a country to junior events overseas, which is really cool. Um, and then, yeah, you just sort of work your way up from there and they're looking for um, performance trends basically. So like if, even if you go to your first event and put like a quote unquote low score on the board, like that doesn't matter because the next time you go to an event, you're going to put a higher score on the board. Yep. Um, so if you're like consistently showing that you're only going to get better, they start like paying attention. And we have systems now that are very complicated and long to read and I don't usually read all of them, but selection policies around going to international events. Um, I was really lucky when I was younger. Dad kind of just – I just went and shot. Dad worried about the rest of it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much the pathway at the moment for sort of, if you want to get to that level, but, um, some of, some of the regions in Victoria run, um, good regional programs, mm. like you got Gippsland Sports Academy, oh, yeah, Sunraysia has got an academy program. Um, there's a so how do the people get in contact with, uh, someone like yourself, I guess that could help them usually find... through, usually through their local club. Yeah. You know, their mm. local club should be keyed into what, you know, pathways are open to them. Yep. Um. But yeah, yeah, it's a, Ashlyn and I are easy enough to find on social media. Yeah. Yep. So if they want to go looking, um, Ashlyn's got her own athlete page. And flick in a message, um, I help her manage it, so she, they'll either get an answer from from her Either or from one. me. So. Well, um, talking about um, interesting things, I know absolutely nothing about shotguns. What are you shooting? What are you currently shooting at the moment? Uh, at the moment, I'm actually shooting a fairly special gun. Um, so I've had a number of different guns over the years. I had my 20 gauge yield is my $600 20 gauge yield is that I started with um and then I went to a silver pigeon um which was we went and got that after my first coaching session with Lauren so that was <laughs> <laughs> that was that um and then first trip to Beretta first time we met you know a number of people down there that we've become good friends with yeah yeah and then after that I stepped up to a 692 um which is also a Beretta and then, so that's above a silver pigeon? Yeah, so that's sort of like the next level of um, silver pi pigeons of like mass-produced. They're yeah, like, yeah, yeah, very, very popular and great starting gun. Like for, or even like if you want to keep shooting it for clay targets or hunting or anything. Um, and then, yeah, so I had a 692 and I took that gun to the Rio Olympics um, and I shot that for, I shot it at the com. Yeah, sure. yeah, I shot it right at the Com Games too. Yeah, so I had yeah. that for a really long period of time. Um, by 2016, I'd signed an eight-year contract with Beretta in Italy. Um, so that's a... Talking yeah. about reading contracts when it's all in Italian? It's in Italian. Italian. <laughs> yeah. They're going to give it's you a It's a papa sauce. <laughs> Basically, I knew that, yeah, I was being looked after. But um, <laughs> the next gun I had after that was part of my AU contract, um, and that was a Beretta DT-11 Black. So they have a normal DT-11, and then they had a DT-11 Black. Um, that and that's just good. It's just, yeah, the next... It's it does lots it looks of sexy cool. carbon <laughs> Uh, that's kind of like your next, you go from a 692 to a DT-11. That's like the next sort of step up in competition level shotguns. Um, and then I have, I still shoot a DT-11 now, but I have a DT-11 Gold, 
which is like a limited edition. So in in the guns, in competition level shotguns, they make skeet, they make sporters, and they make trap guns. And they're slightly different in terms of their barrel setup and stock as well. But I have a custom stock. Um, so like barrel length, um, how it swings, yeah. like that sort of thing is different. So uh, of these DT11 golds in the world, they made 75 of them. Wow. Yeah. And I've got one. <laughs> Can <laughs> I take a round of shooting next week? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted, uh, it was really funny. Um, my partner, Jack, wanted to, oh, uh, he does a bit of hunting. And um, I was like, oh, can I come like to one of your properties and shoot some rabbits and foxes with you one time? He's like, yeah, okay. So like I've gone, okay, well, dad, do you have some ammo that I can use? Because it's obviously different to clay target shooting ammo in terms of the pallet size. Um, so he gave me that and then at the time I was shooting my DT-11 black and I was going to take that with me and Jack was like, no, 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 you, you can't take that hunting, like it'll get bashed around the back of the ute or whatever and um, <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'll, I'll take my 692 then. He's like, the one you took to the Olympics? No. <laughs> I was like, yeah, because <laughs> I'm like, the way that I'm built, I can't just pick up any shotgun and it fits you. Like it has to be fitted to me. Like the stock is custom made. I was like, I'm not going to hit any rabbits or foxes if I just use somebody else's gun. So I was like, I need mine. <laughs> um, yeah. One of his mates was quite impressed with how quickly I could um, mount and shoot rabbits. So that was quite a bit of fun. <laughs> so Jack, uh, without blowing his trumpet too much, he's mm. just achieved a fairly big thing himself. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, we had the, uh, so he shoots domestic skeet so american skeet um and that's quite big in australia and in may they had the nationals for his event and he won the whole thing so they have like a high there's uh events across the week and then they have a total out of that and he won two out of the events like individual events overalls um but then he also won the combined score so the overall high gun which is a very prestigious um sort of sash to have on your wall and that was one of his big goals and he's going to hate me talking about it but he also um, got inducted into the Australian Hall of Fame at the age of 22 which yeah. is just a insane wow. achievement um so yeah that's a points-based system so that, you know most of the people who are in there probably spent most of their lives shooting you know getting yeah. I don't know how many points you get for a state title and how many points you get total. for a national title but you've got to rack up a certain number of points mm. and it takes people a career to do it and he's managed to fit it into probably seven eight years so that's pretty cool yeah you'll be the be the next couple that'll be <laughs> <laughs> i'd hate to be on the range and you two turn up anyway especially if you're in opposing teams uh, us training yeah. together gets interesting yeah. because he comes and shoots my event with me and i go and shoot his event with him and i got no chance at beating him in his event and i'm still trying to hang on to mine at the minute but he's, <laughs> he's very good and he likes to remind me of it <laughs> So um, we have to be time conscious as well. Um, any encouraging words, I guess, for young boys and girls, um, but coming from that girl point of view, from the um, stuff that you've been talking about, just keep finding positive people to be around? Yeah, definitely. I think the people you surround yourself with um, are really important. But, like, I think... At the end of the day, as long as you're doing something that you enjoy, that's the what I've learned is the most important thing. Like whatever it is that you choose to do, you need to enjoy it. But um, yeah, 
don't be scared to try something new. You never yep. know what opportunities could come. Like when one door opens, another one somewhere else might open. Um, and yeah, I don't know. There's so many, like I do, um, I've done a lot of talks and things sort of over the years. I sound like I'm old, but I'm not. Um, and I, I love quotes and things like that. And something that like has been really big with um, dad and I, and dad sent me a, like there's like a meme that like between us, like there's an ongoing joke kind of thing. But dad sent it to me when I was in Rio at the Olympics because um, it was meaningful and it was, it had the writing on it, dream big, but the picture was a goldfish with a shark fin strapped to its back, um, <laughs> which is exactly how I felt at the Olympics was like a, a little fish in a very big pond of very experienced athletes. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah, not, you got a dream. Nothing. Yeah. It's you don't only know a dream if you don't action it. You yes. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And well, you've what's the saying? It's like a, uh, a goal without a plan is just a dream. Yeah. 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 I think um, the next thing and final thing I want to sort of touch on is where to from here for you. Mm. That's a really good question, actually. Is I that something you <laughs> want to talk about at the moment? Yeah. 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 Um, oh, a while ago, I didn't know, to be honest. Um, but no, I think I'm like, so I'm actually going overseas next month. Um, in July, I'm going to Korea for a World Cup there. Um, and then potentially later in the year, I might be going to Croatia for the world championships. So I'm, I'm still shooting. I had a break from shooting after the Olympic selections in 2020. And obviously the games was postponed a year, um, because of COVID. Um, but yeah, I'm back shooting now, definitely not shooting as much as what I used to, um, as partly for a number of reasons, but, uh, I'm currently working full-time studying uni part-time online, I'm um, trying to give Jack a sporting chance as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and shooting. So I'm, I'm balancing a number of things and I've just moved out of home um, with Jack to a new house. So like the whole handling life thing is still very new to me at the minute. So I'm just just trying to get through week to week and just see kind of what goes from there. But um, I would like to go to another Olympic Games and that's what I'm working towards. Um, still doable. Yeah, yeah. Shooting is a sport that you can do as long as my eyes are good. I can do it for as long as I keep enjoying it. I could keep shooting. Like the, Su- the Susan Natras for Can- from Canada, um, he's been one of the better shots in the world in women's. Um, I think she won her first world championships in '72, when she was probably about Ashlyn's age, and she won her last world championships in the '90s. So yeah, you can have a career spanning decades. Mm. Kim yeah. Rode. Was she six yeah. games, six medals, yeah. something six like that? Like, and you look at that's across six by fours, twenty-four years. Yeah, she's the only, only summer Olympic, me- uh, yeah, only summer Olympic athlete to have medaled in six consecutive games. Yeah. So, mm. so yeah, there's no, um, there's no, limits. there's no rush. Like, um, we've got a home games coming up in Brisbane in twenty thirty two. So I'd like, I would, that would be cool. That would be really cool. Yeah. What I think really cool is the fact that you've actually been to Breda. Italy. Yeah. That is. Apart from the fact that I kind of have to take a minute for uh, to sit back and think that I've got an Olympian <laughs> sitting in my office <laughs> um, and trying to. M- my left and right of brain is is that I know you, I've seen you since you've been mm. a little girl from hanging out with our kids and stuff. It's a really. It's for me. It's it's a pretty pretty good 
privilege to actually ha- be able to have you here and um, well, tell, I'm sitting tell here you with, the story. Yeah, yeah. I, got, I got a bronze medalist from, you know, the Javelin and <laughs> Junior Olympics yeah. on the other side. You know, like, this is mind-blowing for me. But I got both of you. <laughs> it's been, been an absolute uh, uh, ball listening to your conversation this afternoon. Um, there's a hell of a lot more that we can touch on, as you can see. You know, that was probably a little bit um, all over the place, the podcast in a way, because we're going from here to there to whatever, because it's such a huge topic to talk mm. about. But I think the takeaways from the whole conversation really is that rural kids do have opportunities. Um, opportunities are growing. Um, that if you want something hard enough or you want it enough, mm dedication and um, you know some natural ability at the same time I think having that family support of a parent especially in a rural community to be able to drive you so far to even to the state when you were mentioning in those those processes to go and shoot in New South Wales you know um, or somewhere else in a state versus state you know there's a lot of that sort of home and we're talking about mm-hmm. budget and having to understand the training budget a lot that goes into it, but at the same time, it's doable. It is, and, and I think that's a really important thing before we actually close off to, to point out is, you know, the numbers are eye-watering when you look at it, but the numbers are a total over a long period of time. You know, we've, I, know what we've, I know what we've invested, but it's over eight years. Yeah. And so it's, it's the old how do you eat an elephant thing. It's one bite at a time. Yeah. And, you know, you start off with, you know, a little bit, and then if if your kid shows potential, then you work out how you how you make the rest of it work. Whether it's finding money out of the household budget, whether it's tapping friends on the shoulder who run businesses who might be able to kick in a little bit and give you some support, club to run fundraisers. You know, like w- we didn't do this on our own. It takes a it takes a village. You know, as a child. Yeah, every for every one of the four hundred odd athletes that walk out in an Olympic team, there's hundreds of people mm. who've put in behind them. You know, so it's a massive, massive team effort. And if, and if your kids show some promise, I think you get more support in rural communities than you'd ever get in town. Definitely. You know, yeah. like the local business community, the local clubs will get behind a kid who's doing well and showing promise, especially if they're a, you know, a kid that is, you know, not misbehaving and not, you know, making themselves look like a dick on social media every yeah. other day and all that sort of stuff. So if, if, you, if you want to do it, it's doable. And there are people out there who will help yeah. and, you know, you put it together bit by bit. And I guess um, that it goes to show as well that in our regional towns there are people uh, that have shot at different levels that will be able to help you as a new shooter or as mm-hmm. a new parent to a sport. Um, you know, like who would know that they'll roll up in the president's daughter's uh, an Olympian, you know, and still training to do um, that same sort of level of shooting in, in the future. You know, so it doesn't hurt to help. It doesn't... To, to ask, ask for help. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. yeah, it's been a long day for me as well. Um, so anyway, we'll roll it up there, I think. Um, thank Thanks, you very Ron. much. You've been an absolute pleasure to talk to. And every time I do get a spare five minutes to talk to you, whether it's at your dad's 50th or wherever, <laughs> whatever it is, uh, I do, you know, I'm just enthralled by listening to your experiences and, and how well you do present and uh, represent shooting in Australia and for girls. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Rob. And we'll... Um, catch you all soon uh, and that's the end of the story thank you for listening to the Hunter Camp Down Under podcast if you would like any information from today's show 
please don't hesitate to contact us on huntingcampdownunder at gmail.com or simply hit us up on any of our social media outlets on Instagram or Facebook. Be sure to join us next week for another awesome episode and we look forward to sharing another story from Hunting Camp Down Under. Bye for now.